Hey, welcome back in to Talking Catholic with David L. Gray. I am David L. Gray, and I'm talking Catholic here with um, Nate Tyner Williams, who is a relatively new Catholic, uh, convert to the Catholic Church, but he's a discerning priesthood into the Josephites, the Society of St. Joseph. So he's a really smart guy that you definitely going to want to hear. Uh, so we talked a little bit, just a little bit about his conversion story and his vocation story, but we spent most of our talk really talking about Black Catholicism and talking about liturgical enculturation in Black Catholic churches. So um, it's something I think you would like to hear even if you may disagree with it. I, I think it's a perspective that will give you a good understanding. I think Nate represents the perspective very well of where black Catholics are at on the subject of liturgical enculturation. And why is it that you see certain things only in black Catholic churches in the United States, right? And, and why it looks and feels so different from uh, what you would typically find in your um, um, Catholic Church in the United States who celebrate the Norvis Order right. So, um, so yeah, I think you really want to hear this, right? And I will begin right after the eight-second introduction to Talking Catholic. And then eight seconds is just enough time for you to click like, subscribe, and share. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit that bell to be notified for upcoming um, uploads. And if you watch listening to this on um, your, your podcast player, make sure you rate and subscribe. I appreciate that. So thank you. And I will see you on the other side. All right. Welcome on the show, Nate Tenner. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. Hey, I am... Um, I first ran into you. I was I seen this article over at Word on Fire. Um, it's called Hidden Figures, uh, the Conundrum of Black Catholicism. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But um, so when I was getting ready for this show, you know, I, um, you know, I, um, you know, I stalked you a little bit on the Google, learned a lot about you. And uh, so I was fascinated. So you're you're a, a, a convert to Catholicism. Of course, we're going to talk about that. And um, so you went to Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, where you got a Bachelor of um, Arts and Religious Studies. You're a singer, and I'm not going to ask you to sing on this show, but I thought that was, that was amazing. Um, you, I mean, you've, you've been writing. Um, you're like this Catholic writer. I've seen articles that you've written over at um, Where Peter Is. That's site, like I said, on, on, um, on Word on Fire. And you seem to have a passion for liturgy and um, Black Catholicism. We're going to talk about what that is. Um, people, have, you guys, you guys have been watching Talking Catholic. You know that's a subject I, you know, I, I talk about. You know, quite often have a lot of guests on. So we got another um, Black Catholic here who um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that and the different, you know, different aspects of that. So looking forward to that. And um, yeah, man, welcome on the Talking Catholic. What's up? Well, thank you for having me on. It's it's great to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's um let's jump in. Oh, I don't oh, I forgot to mention one thing. You are discerning the call to the priesthood, in particular a call to um the Josephites religious order right now, the Society of Saint Joseph, huh? That I am, yeah. yes wow. sir. So you know that's that's a cue for you guys that are listening on, on YouTube or you're listening to the podcast. Um, pray for, for Nate, uh, for, you know, God can uh, continue to help him discern his call. So, yeah, let's just jump into, 
your article, Hidden Figures, the Conundrum, the Conundrum of Black Catholicism. What's, what's the conundrum of Black Catholicism? Well, in America, it's that, hey, you don't see a lot of Black Catholics, or you don't know about a lot of Black Catholics, and B, the Catholics, the Black Catholics that are around are some of the most famous people in American culture, and they just somehow fly under the radar, but yeah, it's a conundrum that we're like invisible and yet famous at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's almost a paradox, right? Um, so I, I noticed in your in your essay, you're kind of talking about you hinting at this the the reality that you have a lot of these famous black Catholics, and then you open and you close your article with Kobe Bryant because this is about the same the same time Kobe um, Bryant um, had passed away in a tragic accident. And um, and you, you you had mentioned he was probably one of the most famous black Catholics, um, famous for his basketball, but not famous that he was a Catholic. Yeah. And you you had point about you, you made this point about if more black Catholics were more public with their faith, especially those um, in you know um, uh, entertainment and politics and things like that. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty normal in America for Protestant Christians to be outspoken about their faith. And if someone is outspoken about their Christianity, you can, you know, bet that they're Protestant. Um, and you don't see that so much from Catholics, and black Catholics are typically no different in that regard. They're not necessarily, you know, talking about Jesus all the time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, if they did, if Kobe Bryant was, you know, spitting about Jesus every time he had a post-game interview, like, that could have changed the game. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I think it's part of, it seems like it's part of Catholic culture to kind of keep your faith under the radar for whatever reason. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if it necessarily helps or hurts the faith, but it is certainly a peculiar uh, contrast with the, with the other forms of Christianity in America. Yeah, yeah. When I was entering the Catholic Church, I don't know, in my, you know, I'm on YouTube, I, I, one of my, I talk about my, my conversion to the Catholic Church, <laughs> and one thing people always bring up, uh, oh, that video where they beat me in person, they always, you know, this part of the video where I say, I didn't even know black people could be Catholic, because I, 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 <laughs> I never, I never heard of a black Catholic. For a minute, I thought, when I was converting, I thought, well, maybe, maybe Bishop Desmond Tutu, I heard, I've heard of him. Maybe he's yeah. a black Catholic. Turns out the guy's Anglican, right? right. So I, <laughs> I, I, have to pay, I made the same no. discovery. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it it's something. Yeah, I agree with you on, on that. That um, yeah, man. I wish because there was a lot of black Catholics out there that um, a lot of people know, right? Yeah. But we don't, we don't, we don't know their their um, their their Catholics. Now, I want to jump back a little bit into your conversion. All right, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the hidden figures, con the conundrum of black Catholicism. You said some things in there that I wanted to draw out um, about black Catholicism. And, but what, what's your faith journey? How did you end up in the Catholic Church? Because you're, 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 you're from Evansville, Indiana. Yes. And I'm assuming there's not a whole lot of black Catholics there. You know, there's not. 
to my knowledge at least. And really growing up, I was the same as you. I was like, I didn't know black people could be Catholic. And my hometown is fairly Catholic. I'd say maybe half the population is Catholic. Maybe an overestimation, but there's a lot of Catholics. And yet I figured there's no way that black people are Catholic, A, because I've never met one, and B, because I just don't think that's a thing. Catholic Catholicism is for white people. But uh, it turns out um, that many of my family members not only are Catholic, but were Catholic in my hometown during my lifetime. Um, but because my mother was adopted, I didn't have a relationship with most of them, at least until uh, later in life. So, yeah, there was actually a black Catholic church not far from where I grew up that I never knew about in the 18 years that I lived there. And um, my grandmother, my aunts and uncles, all like, she had a dozen kids. So I think seven of them were all baptized on the same day at another church in uh, downtown Evansville, Indiana. And I just was oblivious. But yeah, like I said, we fly under the radar, but yeah, somehow we are there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you grew up in the Baptist church. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about that. Uh, I was the son of a Baptist minister. I sang in the Baptist choir. And uh, uh, for, I think for the first probably eight years of my life, we were, we were in one small missionary Baptist church where my dad was, I believe that's where he was ordained and where he was an assistant pastor for some time. And then we kind of bounced around to some other denominations. We were non-denominational for a while. Mm -hmm. um, we were also Methodist. My dad was a Methodist minister at one point, um, which something I'll probably have to come back to. But uh, then uh, my parents split up actually, and I was in an American Baptist church, which okay. is a denomination that split from the Southern Baptist church way back during slavery times, over slavery. That's why they split. Oh. Uh, so I attended there for a while. I was in a general Baptist church and then a bunch of non-denominational churches in college and after college. Yeah. Did you have, um, coming up, I mean, you said you, your town was actually has, has quite a big Catholic population, but mm -hmm. growing up in Baptist church and your non-denominational swings, did you, were you anti-Catholic? Did you know much about Catholics at all? I didn't know much, but I thought I did. <laughs> Around the time I was in high school, I uh, I became more rapidly anti-Catholic. Before that, I was just ignorant. Really, during that time, I was ignorant, too. But I thought I was less ignorant. So I started reading crazy stuff online, just really silly arguments. And I actually um, convinced one of my friends to leave Catholicism, my Catholic brain, I convinced him to not be Catholic anymore and to become Baptist like us. I will say, though, that he was also interested in a Baptist girl. So that was probably a bigger factor in the reason that he is now Protestant. But um, yeah, I was, I was bad and it only got worse when I went to college and learned about Calvinism and started calling myself Reformed. Uh, so that was that was the name of the game. Yeah, I was progressively more anti-Catholic right up until the point that I started to consider it as a legitimate uh, Christian faith. Yeah, look, looking back now, though, what, what do you think was one of your, your your strongest arguments against Catholicism? What, what was like your your oh, like your lynching? 
I don't even want to say that I have one, but I remember one I remember the most is uh, in the book of Revelation. It talks about, uh, I think it was about the, um, oh man, one of the bad guys in Revelation sits on seven hills. And I read that, you know, Rome has seven hills, therefore, you know, the Pope is the Antichrist and Catholicism is demonic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I was something too. I thought I was really saying something with that argument too. <laughs> were you familiar with what the Catholic Church teaches about the whole Eucharist? Were you one of those Calvinists who were just talking or oh, would like to bring up um, that is just a, uh, what did they call it, a re sacrifice? Were you. We did. I did get into that a little bit. Yeah, I believed that they were uh, crucifying Jesus all over again every Yeah, crucifying Jesus all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of my one of my really good friends when I was um early on and when I was coming into the Catholic Church, he was like a strong Calvinist. I mean, I think he had a tattoo of a tulip, right? Okay. <laughs> Don't get much stronger than that. <laughs> yeah. Calvinists always perplex me, right? Because I never um you know, because they believe in the elect, right? That people either born either going to heaven or going to hell right um predestination double predestination um but as a calvinist you just never know whether that's you right whether you're one of you like it's a it's a complicated question i'll say that uh yeah we they latch on to many verses but one in particular is the one that i think it's in first peter he says make your election sure so mm -hmm. You believe you are the elect insofar as you have faith in Christ, but of course you have to persevere until the end, which only the elect will do. Only elect will do. Yeah. 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 It just never, never seemed to be any like. I would talk to him about this, about you know, well, how, well you know, are there any like any signs, any hints, any like, you know, how, you know, along the way, how can you know if that's you? Because you could really murder someone, and you can still be part of the elect. Because, you know, how do you really know? You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess along the way, a Calvinist would say it is their, you know, or they would say it's God keeping them in the faith and keeping them holy and keeping them doing mm -hmm. the right things and believing the right things that mm -hmm. is evidence of their election. But, of course, like I said, you can never know for sure whether you're the elect until, you know, the moment you die and you know yeah. that you persevere. Yeah, it just seems like a horrible way to live your life. I don't know. I don't, you know, just depends on how you look at it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them seem to be enjoying themselves. This is true. This is true. But so you're you're a Pepperdine. So man, you're an Indiana kid. <laughs> you leave the cornfields. This is, of course stereotypical. And by the way, I drive on seventy. You know, going from you know from where you know Illinois to Ohio all the time. So yeah, I do really see a lot of cornfields, but of course you we know, got them. We for sure still. got. Them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so yeah, you leave the cornfields in Indiana and you go to Malibu, California. Yes. Why Pepperdine? Well, I mean, you joke about cornfields, but when you grow up in a place like that for the first eighteen years of your life, and then you see a place like Los Angeles, you begin to think like what am I really doing with my life and how do I get to that place so that I don't okay. have to stay in Evansville? <laughs> and yeah. that was my kind of, that was my thought. My parents had vacationed to LA when I was maybe 12 years old and I was like, this 
is like nothing I've ever seen before, and I must get away from Evansville as soon as possible. <laughs> and, you know, the fall after I graduated from high school, I was on a plane to Los Angeles. Man, that's me. So you didn't take a whole lot with you to college, huh? You know, for, for flying. No, not yeah. a lot. It was just, I wanted to get away. I wanted to get to L.A. and never go back. <laughs> yeah. How, but how did you end up being, so were you like, you're a religious studies major over there in um, Pepperdine. Like, were you, did you want to follow in your dad's footsteps or something? Or, you know, I don't think that was a factor. It was more so just becoming fascinated with theology once I got to school. Uh, formal theology, like learning theology, reading a bunch about theology. And I'll say that I, when I was in high school making those horrible arguments about Catholicism, it was more along the lines of like, tracts from Jack Chick or something, something very not serious. But once I got to college, I got more Protestant friends who read like, you know, more serious academic theology and history. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with that. And that's oh. why I changed my major to theology. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. What did you think you were going to do with that major though once you, once you graduated? Did you have any idea? I don't know. I feel like most people who <laughs> go to college and feel like they know what they're going to do and even change their major, they still kind of don't know what they're going to do. They just want to get through college and learn something. That yeah. was me. I just wanted to study something, study something I enjoyed and, you know, figure out the rest later. Maybe that's not the best strategy, but that's kind of how I was going about it. Yeah, yeah my third youngest daughter, she's, um, she's at the University of Cincinnati, and she's on her third major. So, yeah, oh, wow. yeah, so, yeah definitely understand. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think when I was in school, I think, it, you know, I think I just picked the major when I got there, just roll with it. And by the time I realized I didn't want to be an accountant, I was, a, you know, I was a senior. And um, <laughs> that was just, you know, what I was stuck with. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, so at, at Pepperdine, are you starting to are you starting to look at the Catholic Church or what's going on for your conversion? Where are you at? Uh, not in college. No, I was still. I mean, I became reformed in college, so that probably pushed me even further away from Catholicism because I started to read more history and interpret it in a Protestant way, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, just looking at Bible verses and making something up. But, uh, yeah, I did not start to consider Catholicism until after three years uh, working post-college, and I was living in San Francisco, I was kind of more of a house church kind of Protestant. I'm still reformed, but kind of getting into a more deconstructive kind of phase where I was like, I don't know if I'm sure about the whole institution of the church as it exists today with like, you know, paid pastors and big buildings and just, yeah, yeah questioning everything it seemed like uh, outside of the uh, fundamentals of the faith. Um, but there in San Francisco, I uh, kind of got fed up with everything, even the house church kind of stuff. I was like, I think Protestants have kind of, I don't know if they really have anything to offer. And I wasn't thinking about it as concretely as that, but uh, things were starting to fall apart in a sense. Hmm. And on Chris, Christmas 2000 and, uh, 2018, I visited an Eastern Orthodox church 
which was the first uh, first time I'd ever been to a divine liturgy, oh. and first time I think I was ever really open to considering it. I had just wanted to go to church on Christmas. My church wasn't meeting, and I just walked in there and sat through the whole thing, and it was the beginning of the end for me as far as Protestantism was concerned. And I started to meet with that priest and ask him questions about all the stuff, basically the stuff Catholics and Orthodox hold in common and that Protestants reject. I was asking him, why do you believe this? And he explained just about everything. And I slowly but surely started to accept the faith uh, as it was developed by the apostles and their successors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the divine liturgy has the propensity to do that. I mean, that's, you know, my opinion. I mean, one of the most beautiful liturgies um, of the many liturgies that are still in existence. Um, yeah. So where do you go from there? I mean, so you're asking this priest some, some questions. Um, and what happens next? Well, I start to accept his answers. And... I kind of get to the point where I'm like, I'm going to convert to something. I'm not going to stay Protestant. And while I was attending an Eastern Orthodox church on Sundays, most of my friends were Catholic, um, including one friend from Pepperdine, which is not a Catholic school, but he was a Catholic friend I had from there. He also lived in San Francisco. Um, and so I was befriending a lot of his friends and they were talking to me a lot about Catholicism. And meanwhile, I'm, coming closer to apostolic Christianity. And I eventually start to, to think, you know, I should be considering Catholicism as well. <laughs> no reason not to. And of course, the Eastern Orthodox perspective projects certain things that Catholics hold dear. And I kind of had to work my way through that. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I just came to the conclusion that, you know, the Catholic side, as you, if, so to speak, of the debate is, uh, is the one, it's the true one. It's accurate yeah would you call your conversion to this these truths as just intellectual or was there any aspect of of, of um you felt a, 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 like a metaphysical or like a deeper sense of a god calling you it's hard to say i don't mm -hmm. know that i tend to think about things outside of uh the intellectual and historical perspective at least that's typically the the structure, the base of what I, of my studies and what I tend to believe. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, it's definitely primarily intellectual, like the history and the theology says this, therefore um, oh. it's true. But, you know, mm. even that in itself is not unmetaphysical. And God was obviously working in that and doing supernatural work in my heart. So. Right, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, God, no, we definitely know what you will accept and how you will accept it. So that's, yeah, absolutely mm -hmm. true. Yeah. And so it's, so you're getting deep in, into the history of the church that the apostles of Jesus um, established. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's a struggle between, because you're first attracted to the Orthodox and... You 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 come to um, see that the the Latins would have the um, the whole question about the Petrine ministry correct was that it? That was a 
yeah, that was the the tipping point, you know, because you can't fully accept the claims of the Catholic Church and still uh, be Eastern Orthodox, or you would have no reason to be. So for me, it basically took me from Eastern Orthodoxy to Eastern Catholicism. That was where I started out. Yeah, and what right was and what right was that? Uh, Byzantine. Oh, Byzantine. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was what I was most comfortable with because. My first experience with apostolic Christianity was in the Eastern rites. So, yeah, I went from Eastern to Eastern and eventually from Eastern Catholicism to uh, Western Catholicism. Yeah, how does that happen? It was, <laughs> I want to say it was inevitable. I don't think I always saw it that way, but another aspect of what brought me to Catholicism was reading the history of. Uh, of African-Americans within Catholicism and just oh, okay. seeing that the church has, in my opinion, been a crucial part of the development of African-Americans in this country. And so just to see that explicit uh, intersection between Catholicism and African-Americans is definitely a factor in me wanting to choose Catholicism over Eastern Orthodoxy, which has yeah. much less of an intersection, if any. Um, so yeah, it was uh, once I've kind of realized how much Catholicism has, how much it has intersected with African American culture. It kind of brought me to that that aspect of Catholicism itself, like wanting to go to a parish that had African American influences and all that. Yeah, I'd like to spend a little bit of time there. I'm glad you you transitioned into that because I read that in your your article. And uh, for those who haven't read the article, I'll post. A link of it below in the description is, is Hidden Figures, the Conundrum of Black Catholicism <clears throat> that Nate published over on Word on Fire. And in that in that essay, you said something that I thought was very interesting. It's interesting because I, I had written um, in my previous life, I had written a number of books on black history, mainly the uh, fraternal black history primarily the history of um, Prince Hall Freemasonry in the United States. And I've always mm -hmm. said as a historian of that craft that um, you cannot tell the history of black Americans in the United States without talking about the history of Prince Hall Freemasonry and how it is so interwoven with the Protestant church and you know, all this and this and that. But in your essay, you said something that sounded very similar to what you know I would, I would have said that I mean, you essentially said it's hard to tell a story of black blacks in America without telling a story of black Catholicism. They're just so intertwined, and I definitely get that out of. Um, and I'm taking you. You read uh, Father um, Cyprian Davis' book, The History of, of Black Catholics. That, is that the book that you read? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that is really that's a, a deep thing to say because I never thought of those two. You know of um, black Catholic history in that way, but you found that. That was, that was my experience. That was, as I said, part of what brought me into the church is that even though we are conditioned, I would say, as African-Americans to kind of look away from Catholicism in just about every way, um, when you really look at the history of African-Americans and African-American Christians, you can't not see Catholicism. It's all over the place. It's not everywhere, but... Um, you can't miss it if you're really looking at uh, thorough history. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing to me. Yeah, 
Do you have like any uh, examples that you you be able to like offer these 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 intersects that are just so interwoven that you can't speak of one without speaking about the other? Well, uh, I live in New Orleans today, and in a place like this, though it is kind of an exception, uh, you have black people being educated um, by Catholics, by sisters, um, before before any other thing of its kind in uh, in the United States. Now, granted, it started in Louisiana and in New Orleans before the United States technically existed, but nevertheless, you've got slaves being educated um, just as an act of, uh, of generosity on the part of Catholics. Although, of course, you know, everyone should be educated, but like even in a time when it was not accepted to do such a thing, the Catholic Church was, um, was saying, this is something we want to do, this is something we ought to do. Um, and yeah, you can't miss that. Like, how how does New Orleans get to the place where it is today without that history? Um, and you have actually, I believe it's in Cyprian Davis's book and also in another book that I read, it was actually a dissertation I read about how people from the United States and what would become the United States came down to New Orleans and would uh, just observe how things were, how the churches were, how the schools were, and would kind of be shocked at the fact that interracialism was such a thing down here, even though it was imperfect, very much flawed, um, they were shocked by it. So um, in that, I think that you see those people going back to where they came from, be it America or France or whatever, and seeing and saying what they saw. And I think that influences in one way or another the rest of the development of the United States before it acquired New Orleans and Louisiana and the rest of this territory. But yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to talk about, to think about, because, um, again, we are often told not to look at it or not to see it, but <laughs> crack open a book and you can't miss it. Yeah. How did that affect you when you read in, um, you know, Cyprian Davis book about the Society of um, Jesus in Maryland, they owned a number of, uh, well, I didn't say owned, but they felt they were property slaves. Mm-hmm. And they sold them when they decided to get out the business. Um, I forget what it was, but they, you know, they, uh, slavery is just part of what they were, they were suppressed at this time, um, but they were mm-hmm. still operating as a corporation. They had Georgetown University, and they used their, their slaves to build a university, to farm their land. And at some point in time, they decided to get out of business, and they, they decided to sell their, their slaves um, to a couple of slave owners down in Louisiana. And reading that in in, in Cyprian Davis' um, history of Black Catholics, how did that how did that make you feel? It's it's tragic. It's tragic that the church was so much like the rest of the country, and that it did not see or in at very least did not act in such a way as to value the full dignity of of African people that had been brought here. Um, I wish it hadn't been that way. I wish the church had been a greater witness for the for the common good and for something that would have not have been popular then at that time, but that was right. Um, but you know, I can't say I'm shocked that, you know, they they did what they felt they had to do and what was normal at the time. Mm. And that's, 
one of the sad facts of American history that the Catholic Church was often complicit in the system rather than, you know, being the first to try to reform it. Yeah, 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 yeah. America could be such a different place if um, Catholics were at that time different than the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But many of them bishops and lay people were people of the time. It can, they believed conventional wisdom at the time. And um, it's something. I mean, history, us looking back on them, just makes me wonder how history look back on us right now. How mm -hmm. future will look back on us right now. You just never, you just, you know, how much conventional wisdom do we believe right now? That's right. Uh, <laughs> that's something we should be. That's something really we we should be reflecting on. Am I living in such a way that I will stand out as someone who was doing what was right even before society in general was on board? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. How's it working out as a a, a preacher's kid um, now, a Catholic and discerning the priesthood? How's that working out in in the family? Some some uh, interesting conversations at Thanksgiving. <laughs> You could say that, yeah. It's gone surprisingly well, um, partly because uh, as far as my mom is concerned, her, she learned that her family, is act, her biological family is Catholic around the same time that I was converting. So it kind of excited her to learn that I was not only becoming Catholic, but considering the priesthood. And my dad, who doesn't have that same history in his family, was also supportive. Uh, both my mom and my dad had a feeling that you know I had that kind of uh, that the priesthood was in my future as soon as I told them I was going to convert both of them said uh, well I guess you're going to become a priest I guess <laughs> for whatever reason I'm sure there are several factors but and they both saw it coming I guess uh, wow that's interesting is but why, why why did why the um, little background on the I guess I can I'll, I'll, I'll bring you in on this um Talk a little bit about the Josephites, the society of, of St. Joseph, and what drew, what's drawing you to them at, at this time? Why, why are you discerning that route? Uh, well, first and foremost, because that's where God is leading me. Um, but if I were to try to rationalize it, uh, I would say that in, in my reading of history that brought me to Catholicism, the Josephites were prominent as a group that, you know, committed themselves to ministering to African-Americans and still have that same commitment today. Mm -hmm. And I, feeling a call to minister to African-Americans myself, feel like that is the place for me to, to uh, actualize that call and to do that kind of ministry. Um, but yeah, like I said, God gave me multiple signals like apply for the Josephites. So really? that's what I'm doing. Huh. Yeah. Did you want to talk about some of those? Like some in, I'm interested. I mean <laughs> Well it, it may not make a whole lot of sense, but I uh, I was attending I attend a Josephite parish here and I was attending daily mass before the pandemic. Um, we had a six AM I think it was six AM. I just know it was really early. <laughs> 6 a.m. mass with the sisters, a couple of sisters from the uh, the uh, Sisters of the Holy Family, which is one of the first black religious orders in the United States. And one of the sisters there was 
just getting to trying to get to know me. And she asked me after a couple of weeks of me going there, like, can you remind me of your name again? And I told her it's uh, Nathaniel. And to give some background, my last name is Tenor, but that's not actually my grandfather's, my biological grandfather's name on my dad's side. It's actually Williams. But because of, you know, God knows what, he, my father was actually named after another person. Mm-hmm. So technically my name is Nathaniel Williams. And sometimes I go by Nathaniel Tenor Williams. And so I tell this sister my name's Nathaniel. And she says, oh, yeah, I know a, uh, I know a guy. I know a priest, actually, here in New Orleans. Works over in the, I don't know where she said, maybe New Orleans East or something. She said, yeah, his name's Nathaniel Williams. And I had been praying for some time about you know, my discernment. Um, right before I moved to New Orleans, I joined a discernment group in San Francisco about people who were thinking about the priesthood. And I'm just praying, like, God, tell me what to do. And so I have this conversation with this sister, and she just gives me this, what I saw to be a sign from God, um, that there's already a Nathaniel Williams here who's a priest. <laughs> and <laughs> I, might be, I might just be the second one. So... That day, I spoke with the uh, with my pastor and said, "Do I have to wait like a period after I've converted to be to apply for the priesthood?" He said, "No, you can apply right away." So, because you're a Catholic, when when did you enter the Catholic Church? December 2019. So I've been Catholic for seven-ish months. Wow, you are fresh. I think yeah. I see water behind your ear, holy water. So. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Wow. Yeah, man. And this is all the more interesting for me because you're particularly drawn, obviously, I think what you've been telling both historically and just culturally, I think just who you, you how you identify, you're, you're drawn to um, what is called black Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, and that's, how do you define black Catholicism? If we, we would go if we would go with um Sister Thea Bowman, who um is a wonderful lady who's many people have who is um you know they're starting her, her calls for Saint Hook considering that. Um of course, you know, she got, defines black Catholicism um I think through the liturgy. Um she she would say being black and Catholic means this and so she will list a number of things you know in, in context of the liturgy of how we worship as black catholics that it means this that there's there's something intrinsically in black americans that comes out of them um in the liturgy and she uses that as a, a construct to define what is it, what is black catholicism because a lot of people who may be listening to this may say you know why we don't talk about white catholicism in a sense or we don't talk about asian catholicism in a sense what is why do we talk about such a thing as black Catholicism? I think we talk about it because it is a unique result of the tragedies of American Catholic history. If not for the um, sad history, like aspects of which you've mentioned, like what slaveholding within the church, um, there would be no such thing as black Catholicism. Obviously, African-Americans didn't ask to be brought to America for the most part. And there was a small number of free African-Americans who were Catholic, most of them down here in Louisiana. Um, 
But for the most part, Black Catholicism is referring to that expression of Catholicism that emerges from the history of slavery in America and the people that emerge from that history um, once they're given freedom. And so today it expresses itself in many different forms. I don't think there's any one kind of Black Catholicism, even if the different forms have some things in common. But yeah, generally it is that intersection between Catholicism and the African diaspora in America that is um, emerges from slavery. And that is, by and large, what you'll see if you walk into a Black Catholic church today and, and worship with them. Yeah, and you talk about that in your, your article, um, Hidden Figures. You, you talk about what, what you would, would typically see in, in Black Catholicism. And there's a couple of things you, you pointed out. You said, you know, the longer homilies. Um, you, you talk about the sign of peace. And I think in your, your essay, you say five minutes, which I vehemently disagree with you. I, I swear it takes about 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's long. We can agree that on that. that. Upon Paris, right? <laughs> <laughs> your experience. <laughs> Um, but the side of peace, you know, the hugs, the kisses, it has this 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 ethos or this this uh, feeling of it being a family reunion when it comes to to the sign of peace. The gospel choirs, the um, hand drums, as you point out, you said sometimes it may even be electric guitar. Um, I've definitely seen that. Yes. Yeah. Tell me why some people who may be listening to this right now who are more uh, traditional Catholics, why are their eyes wide open right now? <laughs> uh, because the things that Black Catholicism has adopted from the larger Black Christian culture obviously did not enter into any of the other forms of Catholicism in America. And I mean, it's not, it's no surprise why it didn't. But yeah. it also should be no surprise why it did in the Black Catholic Church, even if one were to disagree with that crossover in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we 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 had a like internet discussion about this when we um, in in writing, and that's one reason why I want to have you on a show because I really appreciate and respect your perspective. Um, you know, I, I see liturgy is, is something that, and it's strange because conventional wisdom is a little bit different now than what it used to be. Mm. Uh, conventional wisdom with lit liturgy used to be, liturgy was many. There, there was a time in the world when towns, every town had its own liturgy. Religious orders had their own liturgy. Dioceses had their own liturgy. Everybody had their own liturgy. There were hundreds of liturgies in, in, in the West, and there was some beauty in that, and also there was a problem, obviously. Um, so... And it, it became a time where um, there's a Pope Paul VI, I like to say, um, that when liturgy became, as time when it was many, then it became one. And the Pope said that any liturgies that are older than, I believe, 100 years at, the, at that time, I think it was 100 years, had to cease. And from that point for the what we call now traditional Latin rite would be the liturgy going forward. And so liturgy became something that, that we're heretofore something that was organic. It was something that um, liturgical enculturation wasn't a bad word uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> because culture formed liturgy, right? But 
um, liturgy became something that was rather being something organic and local, liturgy became something that had became an export, right? The liturgy of the Latin liturgy, um, regardless of culture, regardless of where in the world, this medieval ancient worship became to be exported in different parts of the world, regardless of people's um, how how they how they worship. And so now now so now because that that's been away for you know seven hundred eight hundred years. Now we hear words like liturgical thought enculturation uh, and, and you know these things. It sounds like you know, really bad words, but now that's conventional wisdom. That's how just liturgy is. Liturgy is something that's exported, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but I have some friends, right? Some very smart friends, and I want to shoot this out to you, that who would look at this this, this exported liturgy, this medieval Roman worship, and they would say that the liturgy, the Norse order, or the traditional Latin rite, that it is, is how the liturgy is, is kind of foreign to who blacks intrinsically are as a people and how, how we will worship. And some people would even go so as far as there's some, you know, um, that's like sort of cultural imperialism to force this type of liturgy onto blacks right would you would you go that far or where, where are you at in that whole conversation um it's hard to say it does sound harsh and i don't think that i could fully endorse that kind of rhetoric because i don't think that that's the church's intent and i don't think that largely black people felt that way when it was you know kind of imposed on everyone in the church when everyone was celebrating the latin rite i don't think black catholics felt like they were being oppressed by that or somehow restricted because a lot of them have become catholic to get away from what they felt like were excesses within black protestantism or a certain uh, looseness within black protestantism uh, so certainly i can't say that that was the the general opinion of black Catholics at any point yeah. before maybe the mid to late 60s. Uh, but you know, everything in its context kind of makes sense. I think when they uni- made the liturgy more uniform, there was a purpose for that. When they opened it back up more so to cultural, to enculturation, there was a purpose for that. And in their own time, in the times that those things were implemented, they had a purpose, they had reasons for doing so, and I don't see it as my place to interrogate those reasons. But then again, I'm speaking now from a time when there's not much restriction at all, and people are obviously doing whatever they want with the liturgy and often probably taking it too far. But but yeah, I don't think that, you know, having a Latin mass celebrated everywhere in the world was cultural imperialism. Uh, It was just it was what the church deemed best at the time. And we don't, I mean, part of becoming Catholic and being Catholic is obeying what the church has decided in a formal way like that. Yeah, yeah. When, when black Catholics, and they bring in um, things into the liturgy now um, that 
I would say uh, for us blacks in America would look African. Um, is that I'm trying to find my words here. We say is that can we say that's liturgical enculturation? Because what I'm saying, because I guess what I'm asking is that if we bring in elements, and I'm thinking of hand drums, I'm thinking of people dressing in, in kente cloth and things like this, is, um, and of course, that, you know, how a person dresses, I don't know if that harms, you know, that, that, that doesn't invalidate the mass, obviously. Mm-hmm. But these type of things, um, I guess I want to ask you, why do we do that in. And is that liturgical enculturation? I think it is, but it's certainly unique because we are in a unique situation, unique context. Usually liturgical enculturation is happening in a culture's homeland. Like if you have liturgical enculturation right now in, say, Ghana, or for Ghanaians, it's happening in Ghana. Right. And they are they're integrating culture that is you know for the more or less inherent to them things they grew up with things that they know for themselves that they can trace back throughout their culture for a long time mm-hmm. whereas in america african-americans don't necessarily have that privilege when we do something african or afrocentric typically we're looking at something we are not ourselves fully familiar with at least not in a long-standing historical context like say a native african might be um, so when we put on kente cloth or use a hand drum, we're importing a culture or aspects of a culture that we are ourselves trying to become more familiar with and learn and become connected to. And for me, I think that that's a beautiful thing because that culture was obviously torn away from us in many, in one way or another. And we're just doing what we can and what we think is, is best in trying to recover it. And I think we have every right to do that because you know, what else do we have? We don't, <laughs> we, if we're not going to do that, what are we going to do? We're going to be using someone else's culture, I can tell you that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, when African Americans do try to be African or Afrocentric, I think it's, it's a noble cause. It's good for people of African descent, recent African descent, to, you know, be proud of that and try to display that in ways that are, you know, appropriate. And sometimes that, that can be integrated into the mass, I think. And I think sometimes people outside of the Black Catholic Church culture may find this weird. They, there's an aspect of being Black in America that is hard to communicate in a sense because even though you and I, you know, I was born in 72, um, you were born sometime in the 80s. Uh, early 90s, 91. Early 90s, okay. All right, yeah. Um, but still, that, that's a great conversation because it's, and even though we're far removed from the transatlantic slave trade, far removed physically um, from our descendants who, you know, if, if this is the case that, you know, even if our descendants were, were, were slaves, we don't, sometimes not all black Americans know um, yeah. whether the descendants were slaves or not. A lot of free blacks in this country. Not, nevertheless, that it's hard to communicate this sense that even though we're far removed from it, that for 
a number of reasons, we still feel tied to that history um, in a way that's even perhaps more personal than I think of some, some whites in America who may have descendants from the Irish and from um, different parts of the world, you know, the, the, um, the English, different parts of Europe. Um, we're connected to, a lot of blacks today are connected to our history in a more, in a more deeper way just because of the, the tragedy of the whole thing and how some of that tragedy um, um, still affects um, um, blacks in America um, today in, in, in a number in a number of areas, mm-hmm. and so this idea that that black Catholics that they somehow want to um, communicate that what it means to be black in America and have be connected to an ancestry that ancestry that was stolen is is something but and as much as i understand that right um you know from a black catholic you know my my experience is that you know that i'm not particularly drawn to black catholicism right if, if i if i if if i felt more connected to the culture right i mean i would i would be a byzantine all day right it just it just happened to be that after the divine liturgy was over no one was speaking english Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, I just didn't feel part of the community. But as far as liturgy goes, that's where my heart is. My heart is liturgically in the East. It just is. Yeah. So I don't. I'm not drawn to the expression of, of uh, Black Catholicism. But obviously, you are. And as far as this, this, this desire to bring what was stolen into liturgy, and as, as you say, borrow from different parts of. The African culture to bring that in because there's nothing that we can bring in necessarily here, mm-hmm. um, but it is sometimes that we do. It seems to be the case. I mean, do, do is it the case that sometimes we do bring in Black Protestantism? I think we do, and part of I think part of the reason that we do is because since most Black people in America have been Protestant, whatever we have retained from African culture would be found there. So, you know, there are certain things that black Protestants do, t- tend to do, that we really have no reason to believe it's not an, art- an artifact of African culture. Um, now, I'm not the scholar who can break all that down for you, but I know I've looked up recently, like, why do black people do, like, <laughs> what is known as a praise break? Like, how does that develop? And there was actually a thing brought over by West Africans called the Ring Shout, where they would kind of dance around in a circle, um, shouting, and that was brought into Black Protestantism and has developed into, you know, whatever it is today, with lots of loud, fast-paced music, fast-paced music and dancing. And when you look at it in Black Protestantism, you wouldn't necessarily be able to say, oh, well, that's, you know, an African tradition. But in reality, it is. And so there are things like that that I think Black Catholics since the late 60s, mid 60s, have attempted to bring into Black Catholicism because they see in them the artifacts of African culture. Whereas prior to the 60s, Black Catholics were only experiencing that uniform, more European flavor of Catholicism, which obviously 
probably doesn't have any artifacts of African culture, nothing that a black person in America could cling on to and say, that's part of my lost history. Um, so yeah, I think that's a lot of the motivation um, from, from an academic sense, because I don't know if necessarily that's what black Catholics were thinking of. They just kind of say, you know, this is what black Christians do in America, so we're going to do it too. But I think if you, if you uh, investigate that, you see that, yeah, a lot of the stuff actually is, you know, the, our inheritance from Africa that survived in black Protestantism and that Catholics are now, to some extent, trying to recover. That's my, that's my analysis, at least. And I know some people may, because um, we can never know everyone's intentions, right? But obviously, I mean, this is the case that some some black Catholics thought that one way to attract black Protestants was to incorporate some elements into the liturgy that Protestants, black Protestants may be attracted to. I don't know about, I don't know if that works. Um, I, you know, I, I'm no expert on this. I haven't had a conversation with everyone about why they did or did not become Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. But... I wonder if there there's a point if there's anyone out there who 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 does think this that we should be more like Protestants and bring some of that into the liturgy so that Protestants be more attracted into the liturgy. And I, I admit my wife when she before she became Catholic, there was a black Catholic church in Columbus, Ohio, that she liked going to, you know, because it seemed like a Protestant church to her. She just felt more at home. And I was happy for her, right? That oh, well, maybe she'll become Catholic, you know, by because this is kind of. But at the same time, you know, I just felt kind of dirty, right? Because <laughs> mm. I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I you know, I just, I just struggled with that. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely a somewhat problematic. It would be a problematic method if people were trying to implement it that way for that reason. Like, you know, let's let's do things like Protestants so Protestants will want to come into the church. It's a problematic line of thinking, but insofar as legitimate enculturation would make, for example, in this example, black people think, you know, this is a Catholic church, but it feels black. Therefore, I can feel at home here. I think that's a much less problematic result. Um, and if people were to think about it that way, like we're enculturating the liturgy so that this culture recognizes that the Catholic Church truly is universal, you know, I think that's the point, is that, you know, the church the church should be able to have that that kind of freedom, that kind of incorporation. And I think it can be and probably is effective in bringing some people into the church, but it should not be it should not be thought of or implemented in the in the way that you described, which is you know, let's copy, let's copy some other people's stuff so that we can, you know, uh, snatch those people up out of their churches. <laughs> yeah, I think that works everywhere else. I mean, in, in entertainment and sports, you know, technology. I think we, <laughs> but I just don't know about the liturgy, like you said. But yeah. do we want people comfortable in our liturgy? I mean. The liturgy, liturgy is supposed to make you comfortable, or should the liturgy do be my, my my you know my I think I, I said this to you before that um, I think I think there's a danger bringing too much of the world into the liturgy, 
because it, it doesn't leave any space for the liturgy to transform you to go back into the world. If the if liturgy is just like the world, then what the hell is the good is the liturgy for? I, I, I can hear you. I hear you. I feel you to some extent. But when I'm thinking of enculturation, I'm mostly thinking of, you know, the style of music that we might sing or the way we might interact with that music. And like the other things I mentioned in the article, a longer homily, a longer sign of peace, which I know is can be in itself problematic. But um, like those things, in my in my opinion, do not change the nature of the liturgy. They just uh, shape the expression of the liturgy. Like you could sing the same song in two different styles. You can sing, you know, holy, holy, holy in a European way, or you can sing it in a gospel choir way. But you're not changing the meaning of the song. And so, again, in my opinion, I think that if a Catholic church and a Protestant church in a certain cultural community look similar, that makes sense because that culture um, is legitimate. And the message of the Catholic church is not that cultures, specific cultures are not allowed in the church. And in, in most other cultures, you can see that. You go to a church in a, in a white community, you know what, what the liturgy is going to be like. You go to a church in a Hispanic community, you probably know what the liturgy is going to be like. And there's going to be elements from those cultures integrated. And it just so happens that since the late 60s, the black Catholics, you know, got, in that, got into that game as well. And uh, I feel like it gets a lot of criticism that other cultures don't seem to face right now. But again, I think that's partly because America's unique in the way that it has dealt with black people over the years. And by unique, I mean <laughs> incredibly repressive and not so great. Hmm. That's, yeah, I think I like that point. One, one, one of the lo longest homilies I ever heard was not in the black Catholic church. It actually was in Puerto Rico. I had no idea what the guy was saying. It sounded like he's really passionate. But mm. <laughs> not picking up things here and there. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 but I think that was um, the, the, the culture the culture, the culture there, and I like what you said also about um, singing um, uh, parts of singing the Gloria in a cadence such as Mary Lou Williams might have sung it um, in her in her in her in her album The Mass. Um, um, that doesn't change the essence of the liturgy. It doesn't change Jesus being present. It does change the expression. It changes, you know. But it doesn't change the essence of what the mass is is um, bringing. But why not just have? Why can't just black Catholics just why 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 as um you know as we say in the, in the black community um, we like the we might have some food we might hook it up right we might add some hot sauce too we might add some flavor too we might hook it up why why hook up <laughs> the Novus Order right why do we, why why not just have a whole new right, brother. If there was one thing I wish could happen soon, it's exactly that. Because mm -hmm. as long as we're trying to, you know, in a sense, wrangle the Norvis Odo, Norvis Ordo into what our culture tends to express, it is going to look funky. And it will be very <laughs> easily criticized because of how unlike anyone else's culture ours is. And I'm told that at one point there was going to be an investigation of an African-American right, partially for that reason. It didn't happen. I hope, again, that someday it will happen soon. But 
it would make a lot more sense if we just had a sub-right within the Roman right, like uh, the Congolese have, where, you know, our culture is seen in the mass because this mass, this form of the mass is actually a product of our culture that has been endorsed by the Holy See and whatnot. Because otherwise we're just, we're going to be in that tension and have to answer a lot of questions in a complicated sort of way instead of just saying, this is our culture and the church has said we're allowed to integrate it into the mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna make some people mad with that because I'm not gonna completely I'm not completely disagree with you there. I, I I just you know it's just one of those things that conventional wisdom today uh, probably you know just confines that that notion of a new liturgical rite based upon somebody's culture is just a strange idea. Um, <laughs> strange indeed, but not unprecedented. Not unprecedented. not 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 unprecedented. Yeah, we just have to know history a little bit better, but. Um, Yes, yeah, this is one of those things. And I'm really excited for you to um, um, see where God continues to lead you, right? And um, I want to see how this whole thing plays out in his whole divine wisdom, Nate. I'm really, I'm really happy for you, man. Really, yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate your prayers and your, and your concerns. Yeah. And so now we're at the end of talking Catholic. So I have to ask you. Five questions. I don't call this part of the show anything fancy, just five questions, five answers. Are you ready? I was ready as I'll ever be. All right. First question. Kobe Bryant or LeBron James? Kobe Bryant, stop it. <laughs> That's not a challenge. That is <laughs> no one should ever say otherwise. <laughs> Oh, I feel like I disrespected you. All right. <laughs> no, no, it's just, you know, it's good for the people to know. Everyone that sees this video will, will be educated. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, second question. Favorite, your favorite living Catholic theologian? Living theologian. Um, you know, I'm not sure I have one. I'm still... Like I said, I'm still new. Most of the stuff I'm reading is written by dead people. So <laughs> I don't know a ton of living Catholic theologians. Probably an apologist. So I'm going to say Scott Hahn. Okay. 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 Actually, no, that's not true. That's not true. I take that back. Brant Petrie. I've, okay. I've actually watched a ton of his videos and I love everything he says. Yeah. Nice. Um, you, you Have you read much of. Um uh, Robert Cardinal Seraph. No, but I hear so much about him. I don't think I'll be able to get through my life without reading one of his books. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I have an extra one over here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get your address and um, mail it to you. Um, if you could go back two hundred years, two hundred years. So, what is that? Sometime in the nineteen, I mean, eighteen hundreds, right? Yeah. Um. Who would you like to speak with? In the year 1820, I would probably want to, assuming they exist, and I'm pretty sure they did, I would like to speak to the superior of the Mill Hill Fathers who would eventually have a break-off group that would become the Josephites. And I would implore him to uh, encourage black Catholics to become priests earlier than the Josephites actually Encouraged that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That's very deep. 
yeah, I'm reading I'm reading a book right now about the struggles and of you know a black priesthood ever coming into existence because mm-hmm. the Josephites were committed to working with African Americans long before they started ordaining a bunch of black priests. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I would talk to that guy and say, make sure you get black priests as soon as possible and you don't try to prevent it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so you have uh, cake, okay? The cake is um, just vanilla, um, the cake part, all right? What, what type of icing do you put on that cake? What flavor icing? Vanilla icing. So you can put vanilla icing on vanilla cake? That is the only thing I can think of that would be acceptable, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, what words, the last question, what words uh, would you like to be put on your, your tombstone? Lowly servant. Amen. This is Nate Nathaniel um, Tenor Williams. You can find him online. Um, just type in that name. He's he's a musician, man. You can find some of you can find him <laughs> singing on YouTube. So make oh, sure yeah. you guys check that out. Yeah, he has music on there. Um, he's writing. He's um, doing a lot of good things. Man, you can find him on a couple of different websites. Like I said, um, and um, he is um discerning a call to the priesthood, particularly into the the um, society of Saint Joseph, the Josephites. So. Keep him in your prayers, and we thank him for coming on Talking Catholic, man. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful. All right. Boom, we can't get fooled again.